ask that you turn in your Bibles again. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13. We will read together verses 44 through 52. Someone told me this is the 60th sermon thus far on Matthew's Gospel. So, we have a distance to go yet. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are deeply privileged to know that you have given to us an inerrant word inspired in the whole and in the part that you have not left us in the dark. And now we, your people, gather under the authority of your word and ask that the Holy Spirit will enable us to have tender and teachable hearts. Let us not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom we are sealed for the day of redemption. If there is anything within our minds or within our hearts that would hinder the work of your Holy Spirit, for your Holy Spirit, Lord, is a person, we pray that that would be removed. And we ask that you would give to us eagerness in searching your word and knowing your truth and living accordingly. For those among us today who are lost and undone, we know that these parables of Jesus speak also to them. And we pray, Father, that they would be saved from their awful sins through the blood of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 13, beginning with verse 44. This is the word of God. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, something that has struck me over these past weeks as we have looked at the parables of Jesus is the, the emphasis that he has upon hell. This is deeply serious. All of God's word is deeply serious. These parables are very, very serious indeed. I personally find it very emotionally heavy week after week to dwell upon these themes as I prepare to preach the Word of God. I hope you see the seriousness of these things. I hope that you take the seriousness of these things to heart. And the primary questions before us in these parables, how does one enter the kingdom of heaven? And then also, what about those who do not know Christ? And so first we see how to enter the kingdom. And we have, first of all, two paired parables. First, the hidden treasure, and then that of the pearl of great value. Now, they're very brief parables, so let's read them again. The parable of the hidden treasure is found in verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now, there were no banks in those days. I've heard people jokingly say in the midst of our present economic crisis that they're tempted to take their money and bury it in the backyard. 
Well, in those days, that's exactly what people did with their treasure. There were no banks. There were no places of safe deposit. And so the place of safe deposit was somewhere in the field or in the backyard or somewhere that, we could, that someone could hide their treasures that they would not be discovered by others. That's precisely what is around the parable, what surrounds us in this parable. Now, archaeologists have found many of those treasures, but it was a very rare thing to find a treasure in those days because they were so well hidden. And so to protect from thieves or marauders, they hid their treasure in the ground, and perhaps we are to think of this parable as one who was away in a, in a field that, um, that had been owned by an owner that died, or perhaps long ago he was deported. Another man stumbles upon his treasure, maybe passing through, or perhaps he was working as a hired man and was plowing in the field. Still, it was very rare to find a hidden treasure in those days. And when he found it in the field, he did not remove the treasure But he bought the field at great sacrifice so that he might have the treasure in the field, so that what was in the field might belong to him. And so the text tells us that he sold all that he had to buy the field to possess the treasure, and he did so joyfully. Now he possesses more than the price he paid. He possesses the field, and he possesses the treasure that was buried in the field. What a great thing. Then we have this second small little parable paired with that one, the pearl of great value, verses 45 and 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, pearls were, of course, highly valued in the ancient world. They are today, too, but much more so in the ancient world. Had we time, we could look at stories from the ancient world going all the way back to Cleopatra about about the value of pearls. As a matter of fact, it was, a, it was a, a, a habit of some very, very wealthy persons in the ancient world to dissolve pearls in vinegar and drink the pearl in their wine just to show how affluent they were. Pearls were highly valued. So here we have a merchant. He goes out looking for pearls, and he is seeking these finest of pearls negotiates the price when he sees a pearl that must have been brought up by the divers. Now remember, again, pearls are highly valued. Do you recall in 1 Timothy 2.9, it speaks of gold or pearls or costly attire on women. Do you remember that Jesus says, don't cast your pearls before the swine? Do you recall in Revelation 21 that the gates of the heavenly city are described as pearl gates? And so this merchant finds this one special pearl of great value. All of these pearls would have been valuable, but he sees this one pearl. Undoubtedly, in his entire career as a merchant, he's never seen a pearl so fine, never seen one so wonderful. And so he finds this one special pearl of great value, and he sold all that he possessed, and he bought it, and it was worth more than all of his possessions put together to own this one pearl of great value and great price. Again, a very simple parable of our Lord Jesus. Now, there are principles in these two parables. They're really teaching the same truth from different perspectives. The principles, I think, are manifold, but I'm going to mention three. The first principle that we find in the parables is that the kingdom of heaven is beyond value. The kingdom of heaven is priceless. 
There is the treasure in the field. The man sold all that he had in order to possess it. There was the one pearl of great price pointing to the superlative worth of the kingdom of heaven that all that we possess is nothing in comparison to Christ, the king, and the kingdom over which he rules in saving mercy. Scottish preacher Thomas Guthrie, I found this actually in another minister's work, was quoted from his work on the parables as saying, In the blood of Christ to wash out sin's darkest stains, in the grace of God to purify the foulest heart, in peace to calm life's roughest storms, in hopes to cheer guilt's darkest hour, in a courage that defies death and descends calmly into the tomb, in that which makes the poorest rich and without which the richest are poor indeed, the gospel has treasures greater far than east or west untold, and its rewards more precious are than all the stores of gold. Isn't that true of the kingdom of heaven? Isn't that true of being a part of the kingdom of God's saving rule? Do we not read in 1 Peter 1.19 of the precious blood of Christ? Is not the blood of Christ precious? Do we not read of the pricelessness of what Christ has done for us in many places in Scripture? And so the first principle found in these two parables is simply this. The kingdom of heaven is greater than, its worth is superlative, it is more valuable than all that you possess, all that you could ever garner, all that you would hold on to for yourselves. And so that leads us to the second principle found in the parables. And it is this, that to enter into the kingdom of heaven requires all that we have. Now let me explain that carefully. These men sold all. They gave up everything, the one in order to possess the field in which was buried the treasure, the other to possess the pearl of great price. They gave up all they had. They sold all that they possessed. Now, this is not works righteousness. This is not saying you do something in order to earn the kingdom of God. No, you should think of purchase in the way that Isaiah describes it in Isaiah 55, verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Isaiah the prophet says, you get this great salvation when you buy, but you have nothing with which to purchase it. You get this great salvation when you come without money in your hand and without price, and you buy. Well, that's what Jesus is teaching here as well. By giving up all that we are, we are not paying for salvation, because what we give up is worthless. They are supposed righteousnesses that are not righteous at all, but are filthy rags. What we give up is worthless in light of who Christ is and what he has done. When I was a boy, we used a term of Christians who were faithful and striving to be faithful. We would say, you know, that guy is sold out. That's really what Jesus is teaching here, that entering into the kingdom, a person must be sold out. You retain nothing of your own righteousness, nothing that you think would commend you to God. You get rid of it all, every bit of it, in order that you might enter into the kingdom of God through the superlative worth and value of the merit of Jesus Christ alone. You know, we're so foolish, so very foolish, to so desperately hold on to those things that keep us from Christ. The point of the parable, those things must go that we might come to Christ. 
And you can believe, having read these parables, that the man who possessed the treasure and the man who possessed the pearl never regretted getting rid of those things that kept them from those priceless treasures. And if you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you will never regret having gotten rid of those things in your life by faith and repentance toward Him that have been keeping you from the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and from entrance into His kingdom. Nothing is worth staying out of the kingdom of God and being estranged from God. Nothing is worth that. And so that's the second thing we see. But we also see, I think, a third thing here. We see the joy with which these men purchased the field, the treasure, the pearl. Temporal fading joy of earthly treasure, nothing can compare with what Christ has done for us. How these men must have rejoiced in finding these treasures. How the eye twinkled when the merchant found the pearl of great price. Happy day, happy day, when Jesus washed my sins away. We used to sing that hymn. It's joy in the Holy Spirit. It's the joy of one who actually enters into the kingdom of God. It is the joy of one who finds, I have been a member of the kingdom of Satan, now I am the member of the kingdom of God. I have been a, in, indwelt by, engulfed by darkness, now I am indwelt and engulfed by light. I once was in the kingdom that estranged me from God. Now, joyfully, I enter into the presence of God and am received by Him through the righteousness of Christ. And so I ask you, are you a member of the kingdom of heaven? Is there something in your life that keeps you from the Redeemer and keeps you from the Savior? Sell all that you might have Christ. Get it out of your life. Believe, repent, and enter into the kingdom by faith. Now that's the first thing that we find here. It's really quite simple. There's nothing esoteric here. But again, only the Holy Spirit can open the heart to see it. The second thing that we see is what about those who are outside of the kingdom, who are outside of Christ? And so for that we have another parable, the parable of the dragnet, and we find it in verses 47 through 50. Let's look again. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now there were three methods of fishing. This was the method that was least used in the ancient world. There would be a large net that would encircle the fish between two boats, and there would be those on the shore that would, with ropes, draw this drag net up on shore. The point is the net caught everything, fish that were edible, fish that were not, whatever was there in the sea. And so when we read in verse 47... The kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. We see that when the net was brought to shore, there must be a sorting. So in verse 48, when it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good in containers, but threw away the bad. Now what is Jesus saying? I think we learn three things from this parable of the dragnet. First of all, Jesus himself says in these verses that it points to the end of the age. He says in verse 49, 
So it will be at the close of the age, the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous. The angels will take out the wicked from among the righteous. Turn again to verses 39 through 41. So we remember Jesus has brought this theme up before. He says in verse 39, And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, the harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so the Lord will separate the wicked from the righteous, those who know Christ from those who do not know Christ, those who are saved from those who are lost. The dragnet of God will draw all humanity into the judgment. The final separation is yet to come. Even now, God's invisible dragnet encircles all and in his providence is drawing every one of us, you, me, all humanity, to the shore. And on the shore, on that day of judgment, there will be a sorting out of those who know Christ and those who do not know Christ. He repeats this emphasis that we read in verses 41 and 42. Hell, fire, weeping, and gnashing of teeth. If Jesus repeats it, having just taught it in a prior parable, it must be important. As a matter of fact, when we read Matthew's gospel, we see a rather constant emphasis in Jesus' preaching on the truth, doctrine, and reality of hell. Jesus did not treat his hearers as stocks and blocks, but as responsible fallen sinners and warns against hell. And, you know, I was reflecting this week as I was hearing a news report about a certain individual who died and the silliness that was accompanying this well-known individual's funeral. I won't say who it was or what they did. It's so common now. Why point to one example? It seems to be everywhere. We don't take death seriously anymore. We don't take the judgment seriously anymore. We live in an incredibly irreverent age. Our two greatest occasions for showing how different we are from our unbelieving counterparts are weddings and funerals, people. These are the times that should, we should be our most reverent, our most joyful, use our noblest art, express and confess the highest truths and the highest sentiments. But the church today hardly knows how to have a distinctly Christian wedding, and certainly rarely do you find in churches today distinctly Christian funerals. Huge change has come over the years of my ministry as I have watched this in the church. My point? Death, heaven, hell, salvation... These are serious matters. And they should be treated with the depth of seriousness with which Jesus treated them. A classmate of mine died this week, 56 years old. My counterpart, he pastored a church for 26 years. Pastored a PCA church in Sumter, South Carolina. 
and he died this week. So I get on my knees and I say, Lord, I have no promise of tomorrow. I have no promise of my next breath. Use my life as wisely as it can be used, as as greatly as it can be used in the lives of my people. Help me to take seriously what you say about all of these truths and all of these realities. And so I think the first thing we learn from this parable of the dragnet is that it points to the end of the age. Do you see that? That there is a day of judgment coming. And that those who are outside of Christ will be punished. And punished eternally. And that's the second thing we see in the parable. For Jesus explains it in verse 50 this way. And throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The fiery furnace. All the way back in chapter 8 of Matthew in verse 12. Jesus said, this is in teaching about the faith of the centurion. He said in chapter 8, verse 12, The sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You remember that? That is the sons of the kingdom, those who are members of the church visible. In this particular instance, the synagogues and of Israel who do not know Christ, weeping and gnashing of teeth. The Bible teaches, Christ teaches, Jesus teaches that hell is a place of torment. There is no pleasure in hell. There is nothing godly there. There is no comfort there. There is no pleasure of any kind in hell. I heard the story of a woman as I was doing reading and preparation this week of a young woman, a young girl, who said to a minister, I'm so looking forward to hell, it's going to be one great party. That's where our culture is. No, there will be no pleasure of any kind in hell. Matthew 22:13 tells us it's a place of darkness. Matthew 9.43, Jesus says it is a place of inextinguishable fire. Matthew 25.46, turn to that one. Matthew 25.46. Jesus speaks of the judgment in Matthew 25, the separation of the sheep and the goats. And he says, as he concludes in Matthew 25.46, and these will go away into eternal punishment and the righteous into eternal life. So we have people today saying that the wicked will be annihilated. We will go on in eternal life as believers, but the wicked will be annihilated. The two things are parallel in Matthew 25, 46. Eternal life, eternal punishment. Torment of body and soul everlastingly. There will be no annihilation. I came across this from John Bunyan. You know John Bunyan, the author of The Pilgrim's Progress? The Baptist preacher, the tinker of Bedford? Bunyan says, In hell thou shalt have none but a company of damned souls with an innumerable company of devils to keep company with thee. 
While thou art in this world, the very thought of the devil's appearing to thee makes the flesh to tremble and thine hair ready to stand upright on thy head. But oh, what wilt thou do when not only the supposition of the devil's appearing, but the real society of all devils of hell will be with thee, howling, roaring, and screeching in such a hideous manner that thou wilt be even at thy wit's end and ready to run stark mad again for anguish and torment. If after 10,000 years an end should come, there would be comfort. But here is thy misery. Here thou must be forever. When thou seest what an innumerable company of howling devils thou art amongst, thou shalt think this again. This is my portion forever. When thou hast been in hell so many thousand years, as there are stars in the firmament, or drops in the sea, or sands on the seashore, yet thou hast to lie there forever. Oh, this one word, ever, how will it torment thy soul? Bunyan says to the unbeliever, Bunyan is simply reflecting upon what he reads in Jesus preaching, and in the Word of God. I was reading the larger catechism at the breakfast table this morning, and it says this, The members of the invisible church have communicated to them in this life the first fruits of glory with Christ, as they are members of Him their head, and so in Him are interested in that glory which He is fully possessed of, and as an earnest thereof enjoy the sense of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, and hope of glory, as... On the contrary, sense of God's revenging wrath, horror of conscience, and a fearful expectation of judgment are to the wicked the beginning of the torments which they shall endure after death, our confessional documents. So someone says to me, I don't want to think about it. I just don't want to think about it. Let me live frivolously. Let me love love the life that I I have, losing myself in novels and pastimes and sports and enjoyments. Just let me have my daydream, pastor. But that wouldn't be loving, nor would it be obedient on the part of the minister of the Word. Someone says, well, they're just metaphors after all, gnashing of teeth and fire and all of these things. They're just metaphors after all. Well, let me tell you, it will be worse than metaphors can convey. Doesn't this show... That the kingdom of heaven is a priceless treasure? Doesn't it show that the pearl of the kingdom of God is the pearl of the greatest, greatest beauty and the greatest value? Of course it does. Jesus' evangelism in ours, that's the third thing I want you to see as we think about this. Jesus' preaching in ours, Jesus' evangelism in ours. Jesus expects his disciples to be disciples, scribes of the kingdom, and to preach what he is teaching them to preach. That's the point of verses 51 and 52 in this little parable of the householder. He asks them, do you understand what I'm teaching? They say, yes. He says, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out his treasure, what is new and what is old. The order is important, new because Christ has come, the new covenant, the old interpreted in light of the new, but he expects the scribes of the kingdom, by extension the preachers of the word, 
to preach what he is teaching his disciples here in this passage and elsewhere. Now, there's a stark contrast between the preaching of Jesus and the preaching of ministers today. And the reason for that in large measure is because either overtly or subtly, we're Pelagian. We have a very defective view of sin and a very defective view of the fall of man. But no, the scriptures teach we are utterly hopeless and helpless apart from Christ. And true evangelism is calculated to bring a person to the end of himself if God is pleased to use it, so that like Isaiah, he sees something of the exalted majesty of God and he cries out, Woe is me, for I am undone. That's the goal and end of true evangelism. And the older evangelism got this. Present-day Scottish minister J.S. Sinclair has this to say. Listen well. Today, the sense of sin is absent from many supposed conversions. This important change is now generally reduced to one category, decision for Christ. All that the convert is expected to say is that he believes and intends to follow Christ. There's no word of conviction of sin and ruin and helplessness. A lost sinner crying to the Lord for mercy and pardon and faith through Jesus Christ and not ceasing until he is helped and saved from above is not the newer Christian at his beginnings. He believes and decides by his own native ability with hardly a pang of conscience. And this is what is called conversion. What J.S. Sinclair is saying is this, when you see the evangelism presented in the Bible, the historic evangelism of the Reformed churches, and you look at evangelism and preaching today, it is producing spurious converts by the droves. Decision and conversion may be very different things. And so in preaching hell, as Jesus so frequently does, he preaches about hell far more than he preaches about heaven. In preaching about hell, Jesus is declaring six truths. Now, I'm not saying that those who heard it would have understood all of these things. I'm saying as we read Jesus' preaching and understand the system of doctrine contained within the Holy Scriptures, we find six truths that Jesus declares when he preaches hell. One, what sin deserves. Two, why we need saving. Three, from what he saves us. Four, that we are under condemnation and wrath. Five, that there must be a transition from wrath to grace, a genuine conversion. And six, he's teaching us the meaning of the cross because the cross is Christ bearing the hell of his people so that we will never bear it forever. So when a man, a woman, a child begins to understand these things, that person cries out within the heart, Lord, this shows me that I am a guilty sinner. I deserve your wrath. Lord, I can do nothing. Save me. And perhaps there's someone here even now, and you're crying out within your heart, Lord, I am guilty and undone, hell-deserving. Save me from my sin. Now, so many are deceived on this point that it's important to understand what true conversion is. I've turned to my friend Charles Haddon Spurgeon, and I want to summarize for you some of what he had to say. Now, first remember, 
Salvation is by simple faith in Christ. No works whatsoever, none at all. Christ did it all. But where true faith is found, people are different because there is a genuine transition from wrath to grace. And Spurgeon summarizes it in this way. Where the word of God converts a man, it takes away from him his despair, but does not take from him his repentance. True conversion gives a man pardon, but does not make him presumptuous. True conversion gives a man perfect rest, but it does not stop his progress. True conversion gives a man security, but it does not allow him to leave off being watchful. True conversion gives a man strength and holiness, but it never lets him boast. True conversion gives a harmony to all the duties of the Christian life. It balances all duties, emotions, hopes, and enjoyments. True conversion brings a man to live for God. He does everything for the glory of God, whether he eats or drinks, or whatever he does. True conversion makes a man live before God. He desires to live as in God's sight at all times, and he is glad to be there. And such a man now comes to live with God. He has blessed communion with God. He talks with him as a man talks with his friend. So as we look at these parables this morning, and especially this final one of the dragnet, the dragnet teaches us that God is bringing all to judgment. And I think this parable is last because it provides for us the framework for understanding the preciousness of the treasure and the preciousness of the pearl and the value of the kingdom. And so let me ask you the question. If indeed God's invisible dragnet is bringing all to the day of judgment so that upon that shore we will be separated out on the great day of Assize, are you prepared? How can you stand before a holy God on that day? Can you look at death with composure? Can you look ahead to the judgment with assurance and with firm confidence and even with joy, a holy trembling joy perhaps, but joy? A man can do this when he can say, Christ paid the debt of my misery. God has blotted out my sins like a thick cloud. I have a complete and finished atonement in Jesus my Savior. Well, man, don't you know that a day of wrath is coming? Yes, says the believer, I know a day of wrath is coming and an awful day it will be. But I've been called by sovereign grace. And when the Almighty brings all in his great net and the universe convulses under his almighty wrath and others cry out, hide me from his face and hide me under the rocks and hills from his awful wrath, I will see the face of Jesus, Jesus my Savior. And when others go into the fire forever, I will enter into the fellowship of my Lord forever. Not because of any worth within me, not because of any righteousness I have, not because of anything I have done, but solely for sovereign mercy, because he has clothed me with his own perfect robe of righteousness. And my friend, if you cannot say that, then set aside that unbelief that will damn you and trust in Christ alone to save you, for he is the treasure 
beyond all worth and value. And Jesus is the pearl of great price. Amen.